Hello and welcome. I'm Gary Scheib. Thanks for listening in as we continue to talk with leaders in our community. Well, this morning we're going to talk about improving the odds when it comes to getting a second chance in life. With us is Omari Amili. Omari is an author, community leader, and he's a speaker with Humanities Washington. And he has firsthand knowledge of what it takes to go from crime to the classroom and how education can change lives. Omari Amili, welcome. Thanks for coming today. Thank you for having me, Gary. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you. First off, I guess a little background for folks on Humanities Washington. They're uh, a local nonprofit that seeks to, you know, spark conversation and, you know, stimulate ideas and critical thinking uh, through their Speakers Bureau, which you're part of. They have a, like a think and drink events at local pubs just to get people to come in and talk and listen. Uh, they sponsor like a family reading program, and they support cultural heritage and the like. Uh, and you, so you occasionally now speak kind of re- relatively recently, right? Speak for their Speakers Bureau. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and uh, just to stimulate people, bring new ideas to out into the community. Uh before I go too far, Humanities Washington, people can find out about them online. Humanities.org is a very simple web address, humanities.org. Well, when you speak at these public events, you tell your own story, right? And you, you're going to educate us, but it's about your own education, right? Yeah, for Yeah, sure. well, tell us about uh, that, and maybe that'll get us going here this morning. So, you know, I was born in Seattle, Washington in the mid-80s. You know, that's around the time that crack cocaine began to devastate the black community. So probably by the time I was turning five years old, my parents were getting divorced. And, you know, that led to a lot of instability in my life. I had um, dealt with things like abandonment, neglect. I went to over 15 schools growing up. Um, You know, we moved with our parents to Portland, or our mom and our stepdad to Portland, Oregon, but sometimes we'd end up with our dad when the U District of Seattle panhandling might have to find a friend's car to sleep in or, you know, end up sleeping on a bus because it runs all night, you know. So we had a lot of adverse childhood experiences, my sisters and I, so that led to a lot of trouble in school. You know, when you go through a lot of adverse childhood experiences, this can show up in classrooms looking like ADHD. You know, you might be disrupting class, you're disturbing other students, you're not really very attentive or focused and sometimes the teachers are going to look at that like look this is the problem child this is someone who we need to remove from the classroom so I was constantly getting kicked out of class constantly getting um, suspended and I didn't really see the teachers of the public school system as allies I was actually expelled from Seattle public schools in the sixth grade for something I didn't do you know like it was one of the few times in my life I was actually innocent but I was kicked out of Seattle public schools and sent to Oakland Alternative High School, like, just months removed from going to recess, you know, at Bailey Gatsford. So, they, I mean, just because they expected you were the guy who caused trouble this time, there was trouble, so it was probably Omari. Yeah, I was, I was blamed. You know, you know, I actually, it was, we're talking about the mid-90s when the Sonics were going to the NBA Finals and yeah. stuff. I was identified based on my Sonics jacket. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there were a lot of people who had Sonics jackets at the time, but that's that's how they identified me. You know, I actually, Bailey Gatsard Elementary, I I, I had this weird experience where I was dirt broke, living in poverty in the projects, and one day me and my cousin went to Key Arena, you know, um, know, the Sonics would park and come up. One day we saw Sean Kemp out there, he gave us tickets to the game, and we just kept coming back, kept coming back, kept coming back, met all kinds of players and got tickets, and my school, Bailey Gatsard Elementary, found out about this. They actually called the Sonics and tried to put an end to that. You know, they tried to stop the players from giving us tickets and giving us this, so... I began to see the schools as nothing but my enemies, mm. and I started running the streets and hustling probably like fourth or fifth grade. So my, when it came to the K through 12 system, like it was nothing but miseducation, bad experiences, super negative, you know. So 
I um, ended up just having my values more and more distorted. The more I'd go on, the more I'm getting older, running with my older cousins. I'm stealing from stores, conning people out of money, doing all kinds of things. And eventually I ended up dropping out for good. And when I did that, my values were so far gone that I heard about this widespread bank fraud scheme going on in the area. And I jumped right in on that. You know, I had what I thought was a good run. I thought I was successful. Now I'm driving nice cars. I have clothes. I have shoes. You know, the things that people who grew up poor like me never really had and always wanted. But, you know, little did I know this was not a path to success. It was a path to destruction. So one day I found out that I had a warrant for my arrest and this warrant was for 30 felonies all at one time. <laughs> you know, my, my <laughs> that wake you up. Yeah. For, first time ever in jail. Um, I ended up sitting in the Pierce County Jail for eight and a half months after that, being told that I'm looking at decades in prison for leading organized crime and I just, I, I knew I didn't want to go back to a life of crime. I ended up blessed where I ended up with a 36-month sentence or 20 months under 36 months. And when I got out, I knew I didn't want to go back to crime. So, But you had a barely an education at this point. Is that yeah. what you're saying? At, at this point, I probably had, I'd say, I had up an eighth grade education, but I had lucked into a GED. Somehow I went to, to come to community college to take the test to get my GED, and I passed it. I have no idea how, but that opened the door for some things that I ended up doing later on. You know, um, when I got out, education wasn't really on my radar, so I got a job at the Old Country Buffet. You know, like that's what people do when they're not committing crimes. They're not going to prison. They're going to work. So at 23 years old with no work experience, a GED and 30 felonies on your record as a black man, (laughs) you know, like what were my job prospects? I didn't have the Old Country Buffet was all I was able to get. It was minimum wage. And it just it took about three days for me to realize this is not the life that I'm signing up for. So if miseducation in my K through 12 experience, the upbringing from negative role models and things like that uh, helped take me down this path where I ended up in prison, then I figured that education might be a way for me to climb out. If I don't want to do the things that the successful people in society don't want to do, if I um, don't want to be part of a permanent underclass, then maybe I can go become educated and then I'll qualify for something that's a little more elevated. I don't have to be at the bottom of the barrel, you know, which is what I felt when I was at the Old Country Buffet. I felt like I was signing up for a life of misery, you know. You didn't have a role model, an inspiration, a mentor that said, hey, Omari, just get educated. You just sort of knew enough or you figured it out on your own that said, this isn't good enough. Yeah, there there was no one pushing me that direction at all, but I knew that I had limited options. You know, it was either work for what you're qualified for right now, which is this minimum wage to me was degrading, or you got to find something to elevate yourself. Because you'd seen enough of street life to know that there was a limit. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, had a, I actually tried, before going to prison, I tried going to college before. I, had, I got my GED before going to prison. Um, so my, I had a friend, my best friend was actually a really good basketball player. He was in the NBA draft, and um, he didn't end up getting picked, but he went to a junior college in Kansas and told them that he would go there if they let me come with them. <laughs> you know? That's and a good friend. I, I ended up going with them, though, and a lot of the promises that were made, like my classes being paid for, my dorm. In, in Kansas, the junior colleges actually have dorms and things like that. You know, So we were staying in the dorm. It's super expensive. They, t- they said it would be taken care of, but by October, I had to come back home. <sighs> You know, it didn't work out. My stuff was not taken care of. And I went right back to hustling, committing crimes. And it wasn't long after that when I'm riding on the freeway and my car gets shot up, (laughs) you know. So I could have been in college changing my life. And then but instead I came right back Mm -hmm. to that negative lifestyle, negative environment. But after, you know, after the old country buffet, 
I decided, look, I'm going to go ahead and go to college. So I enrolled at Pierce College in Lakewood, Washington. I still, I didn't know what my prospects were. Like, what can you really do? I have 30 felonies on my record, you know? So I figured, look, I come from a background of disadvantage, and a lot of that had to do with addiction. A lot of that had to do with alcoholism on my dad's part. So maybe I can be a drug and alcohol counselor and make sure that other kids don't have to go through the things that I went through, you know? So um, I ended up enrolling in the to be a CDP. It's called a chemical dependency professional. Um, my degree was human services substance abuse. But when I look to my left and my right, I see classmates who are already working in the field, getting their trainee hours so they can become a CDP. And me, I'm scared of background checks. I have 30 felonies. I'm thinking the state is not going to allow me to work in this field. So I never filled out the application to get the license to even be a trainee. Hmm. So I ended up earning my degree, though. I graduated um, from Pierce College. I had a decent enough GPA to qualify for what's called a direct transfer agreement where um, the University of Washington Tacoma pretty much had to accept me based on the fact that I earned this degree, had the direct transfer agreement, and I qualified on GPA. And then once you get to the University of Washington, they have what's called the Husky Promise, where if you qualify for the Pell Grant or State Need Grant, your tuition's guaranteed. So that went from, you know, I never thought getting out of prison, I'd end up at the University of Washington one day, but going to Pierce College and just taking these little minor successes and you know, being proud of myself, recognizing that I do belong and that I can do this, it allowed me to get to where I never thought that I could go. So when I got to the University of Washington Tacoma, um, I started working on campus, first in the advancement office and then in events and conference services. I ended up working in financial aid. And this has given me like my first experience as like, look, I actually can get up and go to work every day. You know, I wasn't getting paid a lot more than the Old Country Buffet. It was a minimum wage student job, pretty much. But it didn't feel degrading. It felt like I was building towards something. And it was just the fact that I was a student that qualified me to work there. It wasn't, um, we need to do a bunch of background checks on you. We need to put you through this rigorous cycle and make sure that you're qualified. I was like, no, you're, you're a student here. You have work study. You came, you interviewed, you did a good job. We're going to give you the position. So... That that was a major confidence boost. Just being so it felt a, like you belonged somewhere. This yeah. is l- legit for me to be here for sure. And my life, just the lifestyle change when you go from hustling every day, running the streets, chasing a dollar to now, like my, you're trying to avoid people and, and getting <laughs> caught at things. Now you're sure. part of something. Yeah, and I'm going to class and I'm doing my schoolwork and you know I'm going to work afterwards on this same campus and people are recognized. Like they're, they're, I can tell that I was of value. I'm actually able to sit at the financial aid front desk and use my own experiences to help the people in front of me. Like, I just filled out the FAFSA. I just went through all this. You know, I'm learning a lot of things. So I'm able to help students. And it just, it really boosted my self-esteem. It boosted my self-worth and told me, look, I'm not just some imposter. You know, I'm not that dropout that I was a long time ago. That guy's gone now. You know, I'm growing, I'm developing, and I'm a positive, productive member of society now. That's pretty cool. Uh, At what point then... Did you turn all this experience, and then you, you continue to go on, and, you, and you've done other things since then, but now you've got this focus. You want to turn that around and help those other people who went through that same kind of background and upbringing you did, mm-hmm. and to teach them, hey, you can get out of this uh, cycle uh, and get into the classroom after you've been in prison, and there is a future for you, right? Yeah, for I mean, sure. that, that's like your passion right now, right? So Definitely. so how did that turn around, and, and what are the avenues there? How, how can you get this message to those folks who need it now? I mean, people are reentering society. One thing people don't stop and think about, people in prison and jail, uh, 
almost all of them are coming out at some point. So we For want sure. them to enter society and re-enter with success. Definitely. So. For me, it didn't, like, when I was going to college, when I was working on my bachelor's degree, I didn't know that I'd end up doing what I'm doing right now. You know, like, it wasn't, like, I made a plan and I just followed it and ended up there. I actually graduated with my bachelor's degree still not knowing what I wanted to do in my life. Like most of us, though. <laughs> yeah. So I ended up going into grad school. I actually, I wanted to get my master's in social work to work with disadvantaged youth. But when I inquired about enrolling, they said, with your background, with those 30 felonies, you're not going to be able to do the internships. You can't get a master's in social work. So that led me to getting my master's in interdisciplinary studies. My initial research focus was going to be um, the educational impacts for kids served by low-income public housing. And I ended up making this shift to where I went away from that and decided I was going to design a prison-to-college workshop. So... I used a research method called autoethnography, where I was looking at my experiences, how I transitioned, released from prison, and used education to pretty much elevate myself in life. And I used those experiences to, desi to design a curriculum and a workbook for a workshop to help other people make this transition. And after that, that's when I started speaking about my story and, you know, being a lot more open. I started writing my book. And by the time I graduated, you know, people were taking notice of that. So... I had um, signed a contract with Tacoma Community College to offer this workshop. Nobody had showed up. You know, we had a reporter to write a story on uh -huh. it, and it was just, it, it was ugly. But I wasn't discouraged, you know. I was like, I'm, I'm going to keep pushing. And shortly after that, I ended up get, being hired by South Seattle College as a faculty member and a case manager where I was at the Kent and Berrien DOC office teaching life skills and helping people releasing from prison navigate housing and employment and, um, you know, just different opportunities to make a successful transition from prison back into, you know, being a productive member of society. Is there, a, so you developed a workshop for that and hired by the Department of Corrections to help people. Is there not already in place a, uh, a method for release? I mean, are people not taught how they can fit into society once they're released and ready to reenter? Is that something that's sorely lacking? So I, I hear about, you know, some people coming up with reentry plans and working with DOC staff to do that. But I don't believe that it happens enough. And, you know, sometimes you just if, if your only contact with this person was in the inside, sitting across from the desk, you came up with the plan. There's no support to actually execute. Uh, so now there are something like if you look at um, various community colleges in the area, there's what's called a reentry navigator. You know, so they've placed people on college campuses that their job is to work specifically with people who are releasing from the prison system, helping them navigate those opportunities. You know, and South, South Seattle College has a lot going on. Um, you know, there's, when I released in, in Tacoma, I didn't hear of any organizations helping people with reentry. But now there's a ton of them, That's you know, good. with different services and, and what are things the, like that. what are the topics and the key points you make to people and about education specifically? So for, for me, the main thing is introducing new possibilities. It's breaking down those negative thoughts that, look, there's nothing out there for me in society. You know, I could, I could have stopped at that associate's degree level and been like, look, this is the highest level I can reach. I actually didn't even have to go to college. You know, I could have thought college wasn't for me. Yeah. But when you hear more stories of people who are able to get out and be successful in that, then you can see the possibility for yourself. So Humanities Washington has allowed me to go into Green Hill, you know, which is a youth prison here in the state. It's allowed me to go to Washington Correction Center and spread this message that, look, there's people out here who were once exactly where you were, and they're using education as a way to create opportunity for themselves, as a way to change their lifestyle and make sure that they never go back to incarceration. That's awesome. We are speaking this morning with Omari Amili uh, about Crime to the Classroom, you can learn more about Omari on his uh, website, 
And let me give that out. It's just his name. It's omariamili.com. And that is, let me spell it out for you. His name's a little bit different. O-M-A-R-I-A-M-I-L-I, omariamili.com. Um, we're talking about re-educating those leaving prison, and Omari is a speaker with Humanities Washington. He's written a book. It's called Transforming Society's Failure. He, he speaks all the time. Sounds like you're an inspirational guy. Uh, what, what are the kind of messages, uh, how long does it take to get through, get that message through to people? I mean, just like you said, a lot of people leaving prison probably have this mindset, you know, I'm going back mm-hmm. anyway. At one point, there's a dead end for me. And because that seems like the biggest, maybe one of the one of the biggest hurdles to get over someone's internal perception of, okay, I'm done for a while, or that's it, I've gone as far as I can go. Mm-hmm. What are those, inst- where's that inspiration? I mean, how do you get people over that hump? You know, one, one is just sharing the good news about different things that go on out here. You know, the fact that there is a lot of different legislation, you know, that serves our population, people releasing from prison, whether it's, um, People trying to ban the box with employment applications or with housing applications or, you know, just decrease the discrimination based on, look, this person has, if you print a piece of paper and it shows their background, it's going to show convictions, but it's not going to show you who this person is, you know. So being able to go inside and tell them, look, there's a shifting narrative. There's people out here who are get releasing from prison, graduating from law school, becoming attorneys with the support of the Supreme Court and a lot of, you know, major people, you know, like, so when you, when you can share these success stories and let them know, look, this person came from the bottom where you were and they are now here, then it opens up their mind to like, look, maybe I can do this too. Especially like if there's someone who knew you from the past, like there's a lot of people who I know from my past who, they saw, they saw where I was. They saw the fact that I was never going to school when I was a kid. If they uh-huh. knew me as a kid, you know, they, they knew that I was in prison. They knew I was in car. So it's not like this is somebody with no credibility telling you this. So Yeah, because you came from the same South Hill, right, neighborhood? Of I, I actually, I, I mean, I've lived all, I went to over 15 different schools growing up from Seattle, Tacoma, Portland, Vancouver. When I was born, I lived, I've lived probably mostly in the Central District. And I've, I've actually probably been in the Tacoma area just as long as I've been in Seattle now. But I live in Spanaway. I didn't grow up out there. I moved, that was all post-prison mm-hmm. when I ended up in Spanaway and South Hill. So, how about the uh, then the is it accessible? I mean, what do you, you need to teach them that or show them that how to navigate? Is that a word you use? Some up for sure. Prison navigator or something. To, yeah. Are there what's accessible? What's open? What are the avenues the, to get that education? Are there financial burdens and other things like like having that box to check off that make it hard? Uh, that you say, look, do it this way. It's it's possible. There's sure. money here. Are there grants? I mean, does so the state that, making things, counties, and I don't know what, what's out there. Yeah, there, there's a common misperception that people who uh, have criminal history won't qualify for financial aid, but that it's a misperception. Like ah. you do qualify for financial aid. There used to be a rule where if you were receiving financial aid and you were arrested for a drug offense at the time, then you wouldn't qualify. But that's a very small amount of people, you know, so you can it, it doesn't even really matter what your conviction was for. You can fill out the FAFSA, which is the free application for federal student aid. And, you know, you'll qualify for if you're low income for Pell Grant, state need, things like that. There's also student loan. Like for me, my education was not free at all. I did get some grants that didn't have to be repaid, but I still I owe over $150,000 right now, you know. But would I rather have $150,000 debt and a master's degree 
or would I rather have no debt and be pretty much unemployable? You know, because you, you still feel like you have a future. You yeah. have so much potential in front of you with that education. For sure, something still needs to be done about the debt because I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Uh-huh. But I would definitely choose this over the alternative, which was to not be educated, to not have the opportunities that I have today. Yeah. Wow. Um, and you talked about uh, I don't know, was it drug offenses? Uh, this state now. Has, Marijuana decriminalized. I mean, mm-hmm. it's recreational. It's it's legal for sure. But weren't there thousands and th- I don't know how many tens of thousands of people in prison for, you know, drug offenses that now is not a crime. And those people, there's something on their record, or you know, that's preventing them, or they think preventing them from a future. Is that the yeah, case? Yeah, there there are definitely people who have been incarcerated, you know, financially destroyed, had their background destroyed, you know, over something that people are now making millions of dollars yeah. of, you know, and they come from a different demographic. These opportunities would have never been available to the same people, though, you know, as far as like getting a lot. Once you have these criminal histories, it's hard to even get into certain industries. So, it, it definitely is uh, it's showing a shifting society, but at the same time, there's a lot of collateral consequences, a lot that, you know, when you have a, this record on your background, there are a lot of things that um, are no longer available to you, like constitutional rights, for example, rights to, you know, be able to just rent a place to live or go yeah. volunteer at your kid's school and things like that. You know, it's like I, I hear some of my friends talk all the time about how they cannot go volunteer at their kid's school but here I am. I chaperone field trips. I'm in. I've been in the classroom, going to AR parties. Like, why? Why is it that I'm able to do this, but the next person's not? You know, we need we need we need things to be equitable. We yeah. need people to not be judged just off of this one blemish in their past. And the, the juvenile. I worked for the ACLU of Washington as a juvenile justice researcher. And the way that this this system is eating up these children is, to me, even worse than what's happening in the adult system. You know, the the phrase, uh, the school-to-prison pipeline is sort of, I don't know, not, I mean, it's a phrase, and people can kind of use it as a catch-all phrase. But what do you have, do you have anything to say about that, and that it really are some systematic things or systemic things built into parts of our society that, that, that's real, isn't it? Yeah. That, I, part, part of my job with the ACLU of Washington was like to go in and do court observations. So I'll just sit in the courtroom and just watch what different types of things kids were in there for. You know, there's this thing called a status offense, which is the kid didn't commit a crime. It's not something you could arrest an adult for, but they might have had an issue with truancy or they might have had an issue with, um, you know, just, just some type of stipulation that was placed on them, but it's not a crime, but they're being referred to the criminal justice system. So they're now missing school. They're incarcerated. There, there are a lot of people who, young kids who get in trouble at school and the school, they call them resource officers, but they're police officers on campus are right. the ones who are dealing with it. You know, they're, like when you introduce police interaction into a young person's life, especially if they're black or brown, you're like setting the stage for their future. This is what I can expect going forward. You know, I'm I'm being prepared for the fact that I'm going to be removed from everyone else and I'm going to have this interaction with the law. And some of them are actually being arrested on the spot from school and brought to juvenile detention. You know, and some, for some sometimes, you know, you can understand it, you know, but other times it's like no way should that be taking place. But I mean, so and this I guess the research is showing that those kind of offenses that are the same kind of offenses that other people outside of schools uh, get away with all the time or get their hand slapped. Okay, just, you know, it's a ticket or something or, yeah. or, or just don't do it anymore. But if it's a kid, like you said, especially of, of 
color, they, they get yanked and they're in a system already. For sure. And the and way the teachers, like you said, you were taught <laughs> that the teachers in the schools was kind of an adversary, not your helper. For sure. I, I never really saw them as my allies because there was no one asking like, you know, what, what what's going on? Is there any way I can help you or things like that? It's more like just looking at your behavior, labeling you a bad apple, apple and then like that, that reputation just follows you. You know, like like I like I said that th- that situation with Bailey Gatsert and the son. This was the one. I'm dirt poor, living in the projects, parents in addiction. This was the best part of my life. The fact that I could escape and go to the Sonics game. Yeah. And my school decided I'm gonna call and try to put an end to that. <laughs> you know, like that. It's just unfathomable. You know, the 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 schools like that should be your safe haven. If you're at home being abused, neglected, abandoned. Um, not being fed right or just any anything going on at home that is an adverse experience. You should be able to come to school and find help. Yeah. You should be able to come to school and find counselors who are able to not punish your parents, but like they need help as well. You know, addiction, these are systemic issues. These are not bad people. These are people who have a problem that needs to be addressed. And it doesn't need to be addressed through incarceration. It doesn't need to be addressed through putting a blemish on their record, making them part of a permanent underclass. We have been talking this morning with Omari Amili. You can learn more about his story and what he does and how you, you might hear him speak uh, for the Humanities uh, Washington. OmariAmili.com, right? People can just look up your website. There's a chock yep. full of stuff and yeah, information about calendar. you. Yeah, OmariAmili.com. Uh, we got a couple minutes left, Omari. Is there something maybe we've left out of the conference? I, there's tons, actually. I know because you have a big story to tell. But something maybe you want the people to come away with today or maybe something you want to say twice uh, about uh, either education or the future people can have uh, through education or, uh, I don't know, any topic we left off or For anything sure. you want to hit twice. Yeah, so people like me, you know, who wrote a book, I do public speaking, you know, like I'm going to be on the radio through this platform. Like they hear my story and they think like it's an exception or this is like someone who is just completely defying all expectations for this certain population. However, the more and more you get out there, the more and more you can meet people who are similar to me. I'm part of a network called the Formerly Incarcerated College Graduates Network. There's a thousand people in, I believe, 43 states. This includes people who have released from prison like Tara Simmons here in the state of Washington. She graduated um, with prestigious fellowships and all that from law school. They told her she can't sit for the bar exam. She had to appeal to the Supreme Court and they unanimously ruled in her favor that same day. Like you can sit for the bar exam. And then she killed the bar and she's now a practicing attorney here in the state of Washington. But That's awesome. she has a history of incarceration. Also, there's other people here like um, UW professors, you know, who came from out of state, but they had that history of incarceration. Now they're actually the founder of the formerly incarcerated college graduates network is a University of Washington professor. There's um, scientists, there's just people who are breaking down Every type of stereotype, every type of assumption, every type of negative label, they're just defying all the preconceived notions that people... We did an event just this past Saturday at the Washington State History Museum. There was about six formerly incarcerated people there and also the head of the Department of Corrections. And afterwards, a man approached me. He said, look, I used to look at people who were in prison as second-class citizens. I used to believe that they were not worthy of anything. They were like the scum of the earth. And he said, by listening to you guys here tonight, my mind was changed, you know, and it was like this can't happen from just hearing from an individual and thinking that this person is an exception. It takes 
for you to recognize there's a lot of us. There are some people who are not in a, a privileged enough position to share their story because they might lose their job. They mm -hmm. might lose the place that they live. I know people who have went into computer science, into business administration, and you know it's not as safe as when you're working with formerly incarcerated people to speak about your experiences. So we, we just we need to be able to release from prison and come back to a welcoming society. Yeah. The, the best thing possible is for us not to commit crime again. And the best way to do that, provide opportunity and resources. That's awesome. That, that, it's all positive what you're talking about. And uh, yeah, there's the future sounds like it's got plenty of up to it. Thank Definitely. you. Uh, thank you, Omari, so much for being here. We have been talking with Omari Amili this morning. If you'd like to see Omari give one of his workshops or talks, you can uh, either go to his own website, omariamili.com. I'll spell it again, O-M-A-R-I. A-M-I-L-I, omariamili.com, or the Humanities Washington website. Uh, that's humanities.org, right? Is that right? Humanities. That's right. Okay. Uh, hey, thank you so much for being here this morning. I really appreciate the time, uh, and a bigger thanks for what you're doing for those leaving the prison system. It just sounds awesome, Omari. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and folks, if you'd like to hear this interview again, it'll be available on podcastone.com and iTunes within a few days. Just search Spotlight with Gary Scheip. I am Gary Scheip. Thanks for listening today. We hope you've learned something new. Join us again next week as we continue to talk with people that are making a difference in our community.